When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're in the era of I think you should leave where dark and edgy and uncomfortable is the joke. So I don't know if we would have been in the era of I think you should leave without the kids in the hall at some point. That is the voice of Paul Myers, our guest today on Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. I am Harmon Leon. Welcome. And today, we are going to do a deep dive into the history of the iconic sketch group, Kids in the Hall. And we are talking to Paul Myers, who is an esteemed journalist. He is the author of the book Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, the executive producer of the Kids in the Hall documentary Comedy Punks. He's also the brother of Mike Myers. And we are going to talk about the history of Kids in the Hall. A little backstory. Kids in the Hall formed in 1984 in Toronto. Their TV show ran from 1989 to 1995 and features comedians Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson. And after taking a 27-year hiatus, season six of Kids in the Hall premiered last year on Amazon Prime, and it's amazing. But before we jump into the episode, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, a few quick plugs on Friday, June 9th, 7 p.m. at the Red Room, I'll be producing my show, Tale, NYC's finest storytelling. It's at the Red Room in the Lower East Side. Also, on June 13th at Crystal Lake in Brooklyn, we'll be running our show, Comedy Bites, AI versus human roast battle. Come on out and see a machine learning AI take on a human comedian in a comedy roast battle of tomorrow. And now, without further ado. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Comedy History 101. This sounds pretty good right now, this mic. This is the SN7B workhorse of the industry. I'm on the old Yeti Blue. Yeti Blue, which is not a Steely Dan song, but could be. <laughs> I like the idea of sound cleaning. Just to jump in, really enjoyed reading your book, Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, and backing that with the one-two punch of comedy punk. So when did the Kids in the Hall first come onto your radar? Actually, it's funny. The book opens up with a sort of a scene of me walking to see them at the Rivoli and a, an interesting confluence of just as they had started doing those shows in Toronto. Now, I am from Toronto and I grew up in Toronto and um, I had been going to take Second City workshops at the Second City Fire Hall, which is a building called the Old Fire Hall on the other side of town. And coming out of one of the classes was Scott Tom, excuse me, Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley. 
And Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald knew my brother who had also been at Second City Workshops and had gone on to the touring company. So they were kind of like, oh, you're Paul. You must be Mike's brother, Paul. And we started talking. I was in a band that played the Rivoli all the time, which was a kind of a multi-use club. And that comedy was just starting to become something in the clubs. It wasn't, especially sketch comedy. There were stand-up comedy places like Yuck Yucks. You know, stand-up comedy was a little more established, but not down on this hip street called Queen Street West. So the fact that the kids in the hall were saying that they were about to play the Rivoli, and I went, I play there. I know that place. On any other given night, it's a band club, you know? And I thought, I'll go see them. Now, I was also dating a woman at the time who had gone to York University with Scott Thompson. And she said, my friend Scott's comedy troupe is playing the Rivoli. And I said, wouldn't it be weird if it was the same people that I'm going to see? So we went and it was definitely Scott and Kevin and Dave and then Bruce and Mark. And other people were performing still at the time too, like Luciano Casimiri and sometimes Sandra Seamus. And they they basically... Uh, we watched them build a following and there were weeks when there was hardly anyone there. So it was every Tuesday or Monday, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> like Bruce and Mark came from Calgary and that's like, there were already the five of them in the group. It was at that point when you started seeing them? They had, yeah, they'd just gotten Scott. So they had finally sort of settled in. So I kind of missed the firsthand uh, sort of watching them shift their lineups. Now, what I didn't realize is that my brother had also, Mike had also been, doing uh, theater uh, sports with some of them and doing scenes. So they all kind of knew each other. And you got to understand, this is like, uh, well, now it seems like the Beatles, like, and I can say that objectively, but it seems like, you know, Liverpool, but the bands were all getting together and they hadn't really formed yet. And so, but they all kind of went, oh, that guy plays bass. I know him and this guy, you know, but so these comedians were all just sort of like looking for a place to do it. And, and you know, I mean, I could go long on this answer, but the the whole generation was people who had watched the first iteration of Saturday Night Live and Monty Python. And for them, sketch comedy was this thing, you know, like we don't we're not stand up comics. We're not just up there telling jokes or, you know, stories. We're trying to make scenes. So all of these people kind of knew each other the way the way golfers on the pro tour would know each other. They were like, oh, I know that guy or that woman, you know? So it was just like a very small scene at, at the time. And was, yeah. it, was it like a comedy boom? Like, uh, you know, in the States, you know, 80s was considered like the big first comedy boom. Was it like the same there where like- That was like for stand-up though, right? Yeah, I mean, stand-up. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. yeah there, there was a comedy boom in the sense that there was- you know, Second City workshops can't be understated because the fact that they had a workshop and if you're a Canadian boy, especially a woman, too. But I mean, for me, a Canadian boy, um, you know, seeing that, you know, John Candy and, and Catherine O'Hara and, you know, Joe Flaherty and all these people were coming out of this building, the fire hall. They had done Dan Aykroyd and, you know, Gilda Radner had worked there. And so it was like they're teaching you how to do that. So a lot of these people that we knew, Dave Foley, Kevin McDonald, my brother, uh, they all went down to Second City because they wanted to see where the magic was. And then the theater sports started, which was more of a, you know, a Western import. And that's where Mark and Bruce sort of got their start. You know, they were in, they were in the Loose Moose Theater in Calgary, which was teaching theater sports, you know. You think that Calgary slash Toronto dynamic came together to form, you know, the lightning in the bottle. Well, you know, there's various um, 
parents of this uh, this child. And uh, one of them was Brian Nazimok, who had the good sense to say to both parties, you know, the audience, which was uh, Mark and Bruce's troupe with you know, Norm Hiscock, who later went on to become a writer on the show, and various other people in in, the, in that troupe, they were doing their thing. And then and then Kevin and and Luciano and um, and Dave were doing their thing as the kids in the hall. So this idea of saying, hey, why don't you try and work together? So they did these nights where they were both billed, the audience and the kids in the hall. And then at some point it became clear that they liked working together enough that they should uh, consolidate and that they had enough enough different stuff within them, like little teams within them that they could have a well-rounded set of scenes because they had different styles. So they merged. And what what were those early days like? Did, was it right out of the gates? Was it like, okay, here's something? Or did it take them a while to get their voice? Or how long did it take to get their voice if that was the case? You know, that's, a, that's you know, that each guy in the troupe would tell you a different story, probably. I would say that from where I was sitting, this thing of having it be different voices in different scenes kind of helped seem like there was a general theme of, uh, mayhem, uh, kind of anti-establishment, anti kind of suburban reactionaries. Like they were, they were definitely, they weren't city kids and they were in the city and they were reacting to culture without being deliberately political. They didn't do sketches about the prime minister. They did sketches about people having homophobic reactions to things. And, and they did sketches about rejecting the sort of cold isolation of the family life in the suburbs that they had experienced. And and so there was a there were themes that ran through and I guess the idea too that they would also dress up as women in a way that wasn't just for, you know, boob jokes. Like they weren't just putting on massive breasts and saying, "Look at me, I'm a chick," which uh, I I swear other people were doing. Yeah, they would say, "Look at me, I'm wearing this red sweater." Yeah. <laughs> and that was the extent of their red sweater, eventually a wig. Yeah, when Scott Thompson joined, they started having wigs because I guess he had a collection. And yeah, so the, whoever had the red, much like Star Trek's red shirt, you know, whoever wore the red sweater was the girl in the scene. But they really didn't go out of their way to be camp about it. You know, they were just, they just, you know, and they had had women in scenes before. Sandra Seamus was one of the people that came up on stage with them a few times. And they, they, they just, when they settled, they didn't. They didn't do it like saying we weren't going to have women in the troupe, but they recognized that the five of them had a special chemistry and that they would have to sort of work within themselves. And Python had done it. So they felt like it was, you know, I can't speak for them, but it seemed like they felt like it was good to stay within their five guys, you know? Yeah, but they did it different than Python because Python was sort of, they put on the funny voices. Oh yeah, they they were mocking women. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't know how hateful they were about it, but it definitely was much more uh, scorn towards like dumb ladies and stuff like that and old ladies who are dumb and stuff. You know, kids weren't hateful that way. I really like just hearing about before they even got into performing, like their muse was just alienation, you know, just coming from alcoholic dads. And being openly gay in the early 80s or, you know, Mark moved around a lot because his dad was a diplomat. Was that sort of what both comedically bonded them, but also bonded them as friends and then provided the muse for their sketches? 
There's a line in the documentary where uh, Mark says something about we're all broken toys, you know, and I, I, I really, I really, it's the first time and have that was in the documentary. So I'd already written the book by the time I saw that quote. So, so uh, first time I, I'd seen anyone put it together quite the right way because Mark, Mark's family life wasn't as disjointed as some of the other guys, but his thing was the moving around, as you say. So his father was a diplomat, so they would live in, you know, the Caribbean and then Ottawa, then uh, Washington, D.C. So he had a different sense of, you know, he lived in Paris for a while. So he had all these different friends every year and he never had a consistent friend group. The other guys had alcoholic dads and and they had a lot of pain and misery as a result of that, that they needed to get it out somehow. And that group loneliness kind of put them together in a way that you wouldn't have maybe assumed. Like Bruce, Bruce McCullough is really different than Dave Foley and yet they had a lot in common and it might have been some anger and it might have been some pain. And I'm sure anger and pain are very closely related. I guess what kept them together was that they all wanted to do something against it and and do and be funny and, and sort of basically laugh at the devil. You know, like I think a lot of comedy is born of uh, shouting at the darkness and then and, and, and trying to control. And boy, it's a great feeling, right? When you can take all that pain, not only are you commiserating, but an audience recognizes it and laughs along with you. And it's like, it's the cure for loneliness, you know? I was watching this sketch. It was Bruce and the sketch was Becoming a Man. I don't know if you remember that one, but it was, uh, he's like with his son. And he says, son, uh, it's your birthday today. You can become a man. So you're going to watch your dad get drunk. Yeah, exactly. And he just gets drunker and drunker. And there's so much sadness <laughs> underlying of that, that well, sketch. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also uh, the the scene where this, the father's berating uh, Kevin for for not you know not being able to bring home a girl and you know and, and girl drink drunk you know and all these there's a lot of uh, making fun of masculine expectations because while only one member was gay every one of them had had those you know they were theater kids they were you know they were more smart than they were scrappy they'd all had that sort of expectation of masculinity thrust upon them and they all reacted in their own way i love the description of them that you put is uh macabre mirth makers <laughs> yeah <from> your book <laughs> well that's what they said so yeah so it's a, a young interview with dave and bruce and they're on a local talk show a daytime talk show on the cbc which is a canadian broadcasting corporation and it's a local TV in Toronto. And the guy says, you know, a lot of your sketches are dark. And he goes, well, we like to sort of be, uh, I call it macabre mirth makers, you know. And and it, it kind of prevails throughout their work. They did a, a, a one of their first live stage shows outside of the clubs was called Grave Robbers from Hipsville. And then later, of course, they do Death Comes to Town as a, a miniseries. And it's a prevailing theme of death. I mean... <laughs> And death, death is also part of uh, brain candy. It's a, uh, you know, death and sadness are parts of brain candy. So everything they've ever done, the specter of the Grim Reaper and, and also pain, like, uh, you know, because uh, brain candy is about basically about, you know, uh, drugs that make you not feel bad, <laughs> which is a huge part of the pharmaceutical industry to this day. When did it go from the 12, 15 people in the room to lines around the block? Like, what was that span of time? Was it within a year or months or? It was about a year and a half, it felt like. I, and I know that they were becoming impatient. I know uh, Bruce and Mark have told me in the book 
that they were they would like they would wonder about the consistency of the crowds and and they were looking for ways to sort of get a bigger you know because also mark and bruce had come from a very successful run in calgary with their troupe the audience they did a thing where they had a friday night show that became bigger yeah, hundreds than, of people every yeah. Uh, night yeah so they thought they would breeze into toronto which at the time i think it still is actually you know a much bigger city calgary grew a lot later but i don't i think toronto is still the bigger city and you know you don't go into a big pond and expect the same reaction and they were getting very impatient and then yeah and then it clicked i do remember in the book one of the reasons i mentioned it myself in the book was to get me out of the way but also uh, to say that it was a night where it was a blizzard in Toronto and the the, the transit wasn't even working because they couldn't get through. Cabs were impossible to get. So we walked, I walked through the snow, six foot drifts. And I got to the club thinking, I bet they canceled. But in the days before cell phones and stuff and the internet, there was no internet. So I, I didn't know. I had to sort of find out if the club was open and I kind of hoped it was. And it was. And everyone was there. The place was packed. The windows were steaming, you know, because it was it was so cold out. And I thought, wow, if they can sell out during a blizzard when nobody's going out, then they're probably on their way. We didn't know what that way was. We didn't realize that Lauren Michaels, it didn't seem possible that Lauren Michaels would scout them. You know, and I loved in the documentary when the SNL talent scout called and Bruce answered the phone and just said, no, we're sold out. There's no more tickets. Was that was that typical of Bruce or did that kind of interaction sum up Bruce? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce does have a history of, uh, how do I say this in a way that if he heard me say it, he wouldn't be mad at me. But um, Bruce had a habit of like, he was the guy that called, you know, the, the movie company when, when Brain Candy was getting bad notes for a few cancer jokes. He was the guy who had to deal with the producer. He was the guy, you know, although it was Mark who quite, uh, Mark who quite often took the calls from Lauren. At the beginning, I th it, there's this whole thing within the troupe where they talk about this. I guess Mark being the diplomat's son, he knew how to speak to these people. So Lauren would, you know, it was Mark there, you know, that whole thing. Like, and, and, and when they got the news of the pickup of the show, it was, it was Mark getting the call from Lauren. And when they got the news of the cancellation, uh, one of the many cancellations, it was Lauren calling for Mark. But Bruce was the guy who had the trouble calls. And I think also was kind of the, uh, the you know, the rebel without a cause of the troop. You know, like, you know, the, you know, that line in Rebel Without a Cause, he says, like, what are you what are you against? And he goes, what do you got? If, the, if there's a Marlon Brando in the kids in the hall, it was probably Bruce. I saw a show last year in New York, a uh, solo show, which was great. My friend did tech for him. He said, Sometimes Bruce would scare people like backstage. They just Listen, they didn't they didn't really know how to take them. Everybody, <laughs> myself included, has had a story where they go, I don't know if Bruce likes me. And and to this day, I I still I he he'll send me the loveliest text or the loveliest email that says, you know, love your brother. And I'm surprised. Like, what? <laughs> But uh, we have to we have to accept that after all these years of me writing about his uh, his comedy that he's he trusts me a little bit. So that's good. But yeah, people and I've heard people say that he's the warmest person in the world. I've heard people say that he freaks them out. So he is an original. And and I think that that is part of why people like him. You know, like he's 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 not easy, but he's not that hard either, you know. Yeah. And were you there, like still in Toronto when they got the call just uh, to write for SNL, Mark and Bruce? 
Yeah. What, um, what was I, that like? Did they think that was it for the kids in the hall? Yes. Um, um, so what happened was a lot of us were uh, friends of theirs, but we we're also on their mailing list, a physical mailing list in mm. those days, you know, not an email blast because there was no email. And I got a card sent to me. It was a, you know, a photocopied card, but it said, hey, we're uh, we're going done going to the big city, something like that. Uh, Bruce and Mark. Are, so we're having our last shows for a while. We don't know. They never really announced that they were breaking up, but it was sort of like um, there was also this possible expectation that Bruce and Mark would bring the others with them eventually. So but it definitely felt like you know, just as the party got started, imagine if you will, the Beatles, uh, Paul and Paul and John say, Hey, we're going to the Brill building to write songs for, for the Marvelettes. <laughs> but wait a minute, you were going to be the Beatles. And, uh, and they're, yeah, but we're good songwriters so we can go write for other people. And you're like, no, you don't have it. You should do the, and then, and then yeah, I know that Bruce, uh, Bruce and Mark were excited, but they also knew that they had to sort of they had to acknowledge that the others were being left behind and they weren't particularly happy about it. But, uh, you know, they did invite them down to go watch them work. And I think there was definitely a feeling of like they wanted to share it. And then they hated it after a while. They hated being they had they were not fitting in with the uh, the SNL way. And, and it was that uh, Anthony Michael Hall, Randy Quaid season. <laughs> which was awkward, but I looked at the writing staff. I mean, the writing staff oh. was Robert Schmeigel and uh, Jim yeah. Downey and stuff. So it was a good writing staff. It was just, Oh, and uh, that uh, season. George Meyer. I mean, like, you know, the Simpsons guys, it's like everybody, it was a, that was a, you know, a writer's room that is still talked about, you know? And, and yeah, so you don't just walk into that situation. Jim Downey, of course. I mean, like, you know, I, I actually, I think, um, um, Jack Handy was there even. So it was like, you know, it, it it was a legendary writer's room. So you don't just walk into that, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, they're like rejecting like the 30 Helen sketches <laughs> and things like that. And yeah. then meanwhile, you know, the rest of the guys were in Second City. But again, it was like, they all kind of went off to their respective things where they didn't quite fit in. Like yeah. Scott was sick of doing like sketches originally written for John Candy and I think even back to like theater sports, they would kind of make fun of the form. And again, that was a big, to me, the takeaway of like really kind of solidifying them. Yeah, Dave talks about this a lot. Dave Foley talked a lot about how, you know, improvisation was so popular, but they hated improv. They hated it. They would do it, but they never thought of it as the thing. They always thought of it as a means to an end. And some people were happy to just do improv. You know, they were happy to, to have it be this imperfect sort of, and then you know, there's a jazz aesthetic there for sure that I I can honor, but they were writers looking for a scene and they weren't necessarily interested in in make em ups as people said, you know, so so that's definitely set them apart from a lot of the other comedy troops who were there were you know improv teams and certainly theater sports breeds this this idea that it's all about the you know the the quick hit and not getting foam bricks thrown at you, you know, like so. <laughs> Yeah. And you mentioned the Brill building. And uh, I, I just found that hilarious that that's where they ended up in New York originally sharing an office with accountants. Legendary hit making building and making the accountants laugh. That's when they knew they had a good sketch. Yeah. Punking to Paul Simon in the, in the elevator. Yeah. I'm trying to use the phone. 
How do you think of like then when they went back to the C- CBC, what, what what was the comedy going on at the time at the CBC when, you know, they're doing the co-production with uh, HBO? Well, it's interesting you should say that because um, or ask that because there was um, a, a, a troop from the, from the Maritimes of Canada called CODCO. CODCO was very innovative. And so when CBC was featuring Yvonne Fetson at CBC had this idea of adult prime time, which was after the news was at 10 o'clock in, in Canada. So I think they would do this thing where the kids in the hall would be on uh, after the news. So it was still early enough that it was prime time, but it wasn't late, late night. And they had Codco and the kids in the hall and they had other comedy shows, which eventually became things like this hour. It has 22 minutes, which was a very popular show in Canada. And, you know, it, it kind of led to an idea that CBC would have uh, uh, innovative sketch comedy and that that definitely the climate of Canadian television improved. I mean, they weren't bad, but I mean, there hadn't been an, a massive update since, you know, Wayne and Schuster had been the popular team in the 60s. And and then, uh, you know, something called the Royal Canadian Air Force had sort of, you know, taken that mantle. And those things were fine, but they were also kind of of their day and maybe didn't speak to the younger people. So there was this kids in the hall were considered part of the next thing. So and in, so it really upped Canada's game, I thought. Is there a lot of like restrictions with the CBC? You know, I know like BBC has like their mandatory like rules, like, you know, reading like Monty Python books. Was it the same with CBC or were they given more freedom and thus were able to develop? They had freedom in some ways and and no freedom in others. So there was a, they were never really, you know, obviously they didn't, uh, it's weird. They had a lot more freedom on CBC than they would have on an American television network, but other things would get censored. I think, I can't remember how this works now, because forgive me, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but there's a sketch called Screw You Taxpayer. So CBC is partially funded, not a lot, but partially funded by the Canadian government, which is taxpayer money. And therefore, there would often be problems where somebody would complain and and you wouldn't be able to do you get notes because you know the taxpayers demand that they're not paying for something that offends them which is a reasonable probably consideration but uh so they did a sketch called screw you taxpayer which went out of its way to offend everyone and had the audience say to the cbc screw you taxpayer and it was like a, a like a, a big game and the idea was how far could we go how much can we bite the hand that feeds and i can't remember now if that sketch did I think it got censored? Oh, now I have this story is useless to you now because I can't remember exactly <laughs> if it was the it got aired on the either it got aired in the American one, didn't get aired on the CBC, or the opposite. And this, the American network censored it for some stupid reason. And the other sketches about religion were not either not aired or not, you know, had to have cuts. And, you know, and you know, remember the whole story, this story in the book about David Steinberg, the comedian talks about how in his generation, he had written for the Smothers Brothers show. And they'd done it, he'd done a whole bunch of things, fake sermonettes that were parodying religion and and got the full ire of Nixon and, and the FBI, and all these letters writing about, you know, the, the smut on CBS. And, and they were, you know, the Smothers Brothers had a huge fight on their hands because of things like that. And, so it wasn't like it had gone away by the time the kids in the hall got there, you know? Yeah. And I liked how they came in and just, they had doubts, but then by the end they were like the golden people, like they could, they were like the highest thing on the CBC. 
Yeah, yeah. A lot of people wanted to work on the show because it was crazy. I mean, it was it was liberating. You know, there was old people, older guard crew workers who they at first were shocked by you know the the uh, the sexual content, and then as they admitted later, they had a crush on Dave Foley dressed as a woman. So. So, and, you know, and um, Scott Thompson talks about the gay panic that went through a lot of those people, you know, so in a, in a good way. <laughs> and, and you mentioned Codco, and that's what, uh, from your book, and again, it's like music that made me go and check out Codco, you know, on YouTube. Oh, that's great. And I know they brought in the director from Codco for the second season. And I looked at the opening of Codco and it's like, oh, that's like Kids in the Hall opening, but with Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny you should mention that too, because uh, also I think the Kids in the Hall revolutionized um, the look of a comedy and the sound of a comedy show because comedy in the 80s, uh, especially stand-up, but a lot of comedy had saxophones and Saturday Night Live kind of music, like very uptown jazzy music. And the Kids in the Hall brought in that um, big note guitar, twangy, almost rockabilly rock and roll sound as part of what comedy did. And also the idea of gritty handheld camera work and things like that. So, you know, you see it, all the way, through. I mean, even the Daily Show theme, uh, the original Daily Show theme had a very much a kids in the hall kind of uh, Bob Mould. From, yeah, yeah, Bob Mould, right? But it was it was um, played by They Might Be Giants, right? I'm not mistaken. The point was that it was a heavier version of that kind of. So where the kids in the hall were like, this was like, which is very. It's not the same. Don't get me wrong. I'm not insane, but it it the idea was it wasn't uptown saxophone music like the original snl you know so i i really think that they shifted the the way we think of what funny music is you know you're stupid everybody's so stupid just a few last questions here what's what's like the most you've laughed with kids in the hall off stage that you can remember oh like the biggest God. laugh you've had off stage I don't know if I could name one. Um, or or but, uh, just a left. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, just it, it's it's watching them, watching them be like a kids in the hall scene uh, when Scott Thompson, who, uh, you know, can be very uh, concerned backstage about whether he's left his glasses back at the hotel or something like that. And watching Scott tear the place apart while Dave Foley is riffing on him saying you know well scott here we go again you've lost your glasses you know that whole thing and and then you know and kevin being kevin going i don't want to get in your way but uh maybe you left them uh i think they were over there and and you're like these are the characters you know from the sketches but this is their real life you know or bruce saying something cutting to uh to to mark and uh and mark just saying oh fuck off you know like and it and they are exactly in some ways who they look like they are and their dynamic is such a family dynamic now. They've been, they've been doing this longer together than almost any other relationship in their lives. So, they know everything about each other. And if you had to compare each to an iconic musician, how 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 would you compare each? Oh my God, that's so tough. I mean, I mean, it's <laughs> tempting to say that Dave's the McCartney, but um, but I don't know. Um, and you know, everyone always said that Bruce was John Lennon, but. Uh, I don't, I, I don't want to go there. It's too hard. It's too hard. Like it's just, uh, I want to get it right if I'm going to do it. And I don't think on the spot I can do it, but uh, they're definitely, they definitely are a band 
they could be the Rolling Stones. They could be uh, Fleetwood Mac at other times uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships. They could be uh, the Beatles in other times. And much like the Beatles, you know, don't count Ringo out. You know, it's it's every member of the troupe is doing something different that is equally important to the whole five, you know, and I, I don't think there's, you know, there's no one person who's the star and there's no one person who's just, you know, along for the ride. So I'm dodging the question. Thank you. And do you feel that there was any sketch that they did that went too far? Oh, wow. Um, well, there's some stuff in the screw you taxpayer sketch that uh, I understand why they did it, but oh my God, I would never do it. <laughs> like there's a uh, stereotype humor in that, that is just so bad. Like, it's just so bad. I think I actually, to be honest, I, I, I used to think cancer boy in, in brain candy was going too far. And then I realized it was not making fun of the kid. It was making fun of the industry around the kid. It's, it's making fun of how, um, how these make a wish things sometimes are patting the person on the back not always, but sometimes sometimes uh, people's charitable work is about them and not about the cause itself. And uh, and I I think that they couldn't let that sit, so they they made fun of it. And you know, this and Death Comes to Town has got a lot of stuff in it that is very very dark to the point where I'm like, you know, but we're in the era of I think you should leave, where dark and edgy and uncomfortable is the joke. So I don't know if we would have been in the era of I think you should leave without the kids in the hall at some point, you know. And and just lastly, where would you say Kids in the Hall's place is in comedy history? Well, I mean, literally, they're the place between Saturday Night Live and Python, uh, Python Saturday Night Live, and then Mr. Show, and then you know where we you know, and then Key and Peele, like they're like they're they created a certain kind of filmic sketch thing that took from those Python and to some extent SNL. I don't know if they can actually say they took so much from SNL, but they were they were inspired by the idea of ensemble comedy. And then they took it to a place where by the time Mr. Show got on the air, we were ready for something like that. And I think, uh, I don't know, if, I, I can't say that Odenkirk and Cross were, you know, inspired by the kids in the hall to write the way they did, but they certainly had an opening to do it because of the you know, the moves that came there. And Ben Stiller's show had a little bit of that too. So, so that's where they are in that, actual thing but the seats of the kids in the hall are like it's still happening baroness von sketch on cbc was women doing it the way they had done it as men and it 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 carried a lot of that dna and you know and and bruce is producing a show been producing a show called tall boys which is a younger sketch troupe from canada and you can see it it's it's this and and i think you should leave it has elements of kids in the hall in it when they go really uncomfortable so i think yeah i think they're definitely they're still relevant, you know? I think they are. And that's probably why my book and why the movie, which I'm an executive producer of uh, Comedy Punks, you know, won, won a Canadian Screen Award last year, if I may brag, but because, you know, Reg Harkema did a great job directing that. And it, it really got across what is still enduring about the kids in the hall. It's still enduring a, a double positive. It, what endures about the kids in the hall? There's the, the rewrite. Okay. And lastly, where can people both find the book, your podcast, and the documentary? Okay, so the book is available at your local independent bookseller. It's published by House of Anansi. If they don't have it, ask them to order it because we like to support independent booksellers. But you could also get it from the Big A. Uh, you can get it from uh, 
uh, Amazon if you want, and that would be very nice of you. And the film is, a, is streaming right now on Amazon, and it's a two-part documentary, so it, you can watch one at a time or watch them together. And uh, my podcast is the Record Store Day podcast. We talk to musicians and people in the record selling business, as well as producers and th things like that. And it's on every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. So it's the Record Store Day podcast with Paul Myers. Excellent. Paul, thank you so much. It was a pure treat to talk to you and hear the stories. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, it was great to talk to you too. Thank you. Bye. And that does it for our show. Once again, thanks for tuning in to Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. Remember, like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your fine podcasts. And plugs once again, Friday, June 9th, 7 p.m. at the Red Room in New York City. I will be running my show, Tale, NYC's Finest Storytelling. And on Tuesday, June 13th at Crystal Lake in Brooklyn, we will be running our show, Comedy Bites, AI versus Human Roast Battle. You can check this all out at Harmon Leon on Twitter, Instagram, and until next time, bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Excuse me. Comedy History 101.